0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is part of an increasingly scarce breed of people, the consistently working screenwriter. Uh, Liz Hanna is most known for writing The Post, the great uh, film starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and directed by uh, Steven Spielberg. Uh, she was in the writer's room uh, on Mindhunter season two. My like my one of my two favorite television shows of the last long number of years. And I have to understand what it was like working with David Fincher and on that show. Uh, can't wait to hear some things about that. She has a movie she wrote that is uh, going to go into production this coming year, uh, starring uh, Kate Winslet and being directed by Ellen Curris. She is also an executive producer on another TV show and has created a show that is going to come out. So she's constantly working. But I know from reading about you, Liz, and what I've picked up on Twitter, that this road hasn't always been easy. And that's really one of the things I'm always fascinated by because I I know the ways in which I dealt with rejection and failure and trying to keep this dream alive. And I know that you did. So I thought a useful way to start in case people haven't read about you or seen you interviewed is, could you just talk about your, in a sort of global or general way, your path here? Like, how did you even get grabbed by reading, writing, and thinking about film and TV in the first place?
1: Um, Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. Big fan um, of you and of the show. So of you in multiple ways, I guess. Um, How I got started here... Well, I was always a really big reader. Um, My parents are both really big film buffs. Uh, Neither of them work in the industry, but they made it a priority for me to be exposed to movies and television at a young age and always had movie nights. And I just expressed an interest really young um, in filmmaking, not really knowing what that meant uh, at all. But I was like, that's something I'm really interested in. And I was always making up stories and that kind of thing. So I guess, um, and both my parents are very creative. And so I, I was really encouraged in my house. So there wasn't really another option for me, I think, growing up. Um, I wanted to be a baseball player for a long time, but that, uh, you know.
0: My, Were you good uh, at Little League?
1: I, I was really good. Um, I was a I was a very good softball player. Um, but, you know, then I realized that I didn't have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to practice. So I was like, oh, <laughs> There's another yeah. life
0: out there. Yes. Um, wait, wait. When you grew up, when you say your parents were were buffs, um, what kind of stuff were like? So my dad and I watched a ton of westerns. He wouldn't have ever mm-hmm. described himself as a buff, but like I spent so many Saturday afternoons watching Westerns and gangster films with my dad. And it just sort of was a casual film education. So, yeah. like, what were your parents into? And I, I read that you you grew up both in Connecticut and New York. So your parents split at a certain point. So who was into what and how did that operate for you?
1: My dad, um, was really into, uh, sort of like forties and fifties, you know, black and white kind of mystery films, you know, the Maltese Falcon, yes. um, uh, the Invisible Man, you know, uh, the whole Nick and Nora series. Oh, like, the best. There's nothing fun. like the
0: Nick and Nora series. For exactly. screenwriters, as a, a, to cut your teeth on that dialogue, incredible.
1: I mean, it's, you know, it's it's sort of, you always go back to it at a certain point. You're like, well, we just can't get any better than that. Um and That's And, true. you know, something my parents both shared was a love of 70s um, political thrillers. So, you know, obviously, All the President's Men was very big for us, um, but- you know, network, obviously. Um, So kind of that was the where the Venn diagram met. My mom kind of watches everything. She is the one still who texts me and will be like, have you seen this movie from, you know, 1982 that I've never heard of? Um, And equally, we'll watch Wonder Woman 1984. So I really sort of credit her with the just complete gamut of genre. You know, her favorite movies are like Independence Day and the usual suspects. So there's a large there's a large swath of, of favorites in there.
0: So when you talk about those seventies movies, it's funny. When I was watching the post, uh, I saw it when it came out, but I started watching it again a couple days ago. I immediately, you know that oh, it's funny because when I had finished watching the movie the last time, I kind of didn't hold on to that first ten minutes. Mm. But then when I watched it again, the first ten minutes of the movie are so much like um well, like in a way, they reminded me of the end of Three Days of the Condor. Mm-hmm. And were you thinking about Three Days of the Condor and Parallax View in those movies? Or when or was that? Did that stuff happen as you guys started talking about making the movie?
1: Um, no, for sure. I, I, Pakula was a huge influence for me, just in general. Yes. Um, on that film, and then as the script developed, once um, Stephen got on, came on board and yes. Josh Singer came on board. Um, It really, you know, it went from being a spec that I had written, not thinking anyone would ever make it to a film to a to a not only a film, a Steven Spielberg film. And so the scope of the movie, you know, really grew. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that Steven added was the opening of the Vietnam sequence that was You know, he very rightfully so was, you know, uh, aware of the fact that we had to articulate to an audience who maybe had heard about the Pentagon Papers, but didn't really know what they were, what the importance was. And then putting
0: Daniel there in that air. So was that airplane sequence came later?
1: Yes. So that came later. That came, I mean, it came pretty soon once once Stephen had come on board um, of defining kind of Ellsberg's um, turn because he, you know... Daniel Ellsberg, who is uh, incredibly, you know, articulate and I believe very patriotic, and I got to know him a little bit while making this movie. You know, he was a hawk very much so right. until he went to Vietnam and saw what was happening and saw the lies that were being told on the ground, and um, he took that as a not only a personal offense but also as a political. Um, global offense uh, and national offense and so that I think was a really important sequence the the Xeroxing of the Pentagon Papers was in there had been in there um, early sure. on but the Vietnam sequence was added later
0: yeah I mean the sequence I was really talking about is sort of from the airplane to mm-hmm. the xeroxing of the stuff um, mm-hmm. it, and then the beginning in the papers and the it just there was something that for me in the best way, brought me back to both parallax view and three days of the condor and, and, and the sort of earned paranoia of those Mm -hmm. films exists, I think in your film too.
1: Yeah, we, um, you know, again, Pakula was a humongous influence, not only I think, um, in the writing of the script, but also in the production of the film and, and visually. And there's one scene, um, in the movie where, um, one of the characters is walking towards a, pho- a phone booth to make a phone call yes um and there's a, lar- a a wide shot of a parking garage and very very small in the background is is the phone bank and i remember standing next to steven when um janusz Kaminski, who, who was the cinematographer film was setting everything up and kind of locked off the camera and I looked at it and I was just, it was straight out of a cooler film with the architecture and the angles and the design of it. Um, and I was just, it was stunning. I hadn't really, you know, I had walked by that parking lot before and I'm not Steven Spielberg, so I didn't pick up on it.
0: Well, yeah, I'm going to ask you about being on set and, and that stuff in a, in a minute. Um, but because uh, I think it's it's a fascinating uh, experience, especially your first time in that, in that job, doing it uh, is is sort of fascinating. Um, so you're you're growing up, you're thinking about this stuff. You love it, right? What you know is that you love movies. Um, you love reading. What were you reading? Like, what what era did you grow up in? Like, I grew up in New York in the late '70s and '80s. You're much younger than I am. So w- when were you sort of in New York in, in your in, teenage years? Uh,
1: Teenagers was the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, and I, in terms of what I was reading again, I cut, my dad made me read a book like every, you know, I'm probably going to say a week, but I think that's aggressive. It was probably every couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and so I was reading everything from Hemingway to Steinbeck to Bukowski to Harper Lee, you know, I, uh, to kill a mockingbird was, was has been hugely influent- influential and, um, and you know, so it wasn't necessarily um, things of that era. You know, I, Philip Roth was somebody who was really influential to me um, that I read at a young age and was a favorite of my dad's. And so um, well, that's very-
0: fascinating. I mean, there are not, my, my wife loves Philip Roth's work, but like she started reading him as a grown, I mean, she's, she's grown up. May, there aren't that many young women reading Philip Roth.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's b- very influential for my dad, you know, th- that right? He- so
0: he handed it off to you.
1: Exactly. I would just kind of go to our library, you know, our bookshelves and just pick whatever he had put back and and kind of read it that way.
0: And you were writing too?
1: Yeah. I mean, not well, but yeah, I was writing, you know, I was writing, you know, little stories, um, little books, you know, things that I didn't try writing screenplays or, or even just short film scripts until I was probably in high school. And then I started Doing that and playing that, I was really involved in the theater department um, in my high school. Me too. And so, me
0: too in mine. Yeah,
1: I, I really thought that I actually was going to maybe go into playwriting at some point or being involved um, in theater. Um, but you know, there's something about the lasting nature of cinema and uh, and the way that I think. The collaboration. This is not meaning that um, theater is not collaborative. It is extremely. But you know, you need uh, every day on set. You're creating a historical record of what um, the interpretation of the script is. And even to get to that point is an extremely um, collaborative, long, sometimes much longer than you want it to yeah. be process. And the idea of putting something down and having the ability to go back and watch it was really something that just appealed to me.
0: Where where did you
1: go to uh, high school? I went to high school uh, at Staples High School in Westport, Connecticut.
0: And uh, I mean, Westport's a fascinating place. The sort of economic mix of Westport mm-hmm. is fascinating, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as a place to look at, um, to sort of people watch and everything. And oh yeah, that was a boom time for Westport, right? As the, in the early 2000s, for sure, it started. Becoming, Absolutely.
1: I mean, it had started as sort of an artist colony because it was, you know, 45 to an hour outside of the city. So that was why my dad is an artist. And so that was why we had moved there um, was because he could, there was, there was a community there, you know, it's, it's um, F. Scott Fitzgerald had lived there. You know, there was kind of this history, Arthur Miller had lived there. There was sort of this history of, of creativity. And then in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, it became the financial hub of, yes. you know, outside of New York. That's where everybody lived. So it was kind of an interesting dichotomy.
0: Yeah, it really is. It must have been fascinating, actually, to take a picture of all that um, and and see all that. Like I have visited for researching the show. I've I've like visited billionaires in, in Westport and seen sort of all sides of it. Fascinating oh, yeah. place to grow up, I'm sure. But when you were there, did you think of yourself as like a talented person at that time? Did any teachers say to you, hey, you're really good at this writing thing? Um, did you tell people that yet? Your dream was to be uh, a creative person with your life. Did you keep it to yourself? How did that all work for you?
1: I definitely kept it to myself. I mean, every I think I was definitely I was very creative, and people knew that my my strengths were not in academics necessarily. Um, <laughs> I, homework was something I didn't realize I had to do until I was like a sophomore in college in high school. So um, I think you know I had a couple of teachers that were really influential and supportive. Um, there was a teacher named Dr. K who was an English teacher, who he was, he taught a film class. Um, and that was the only film class that was offered at the school that wasn't, you know, um, sort of just study hall (laughs) and he was just a big film buff. And so that was really, and, and breaking down cinema was, was kind of what the class was about. And that was really influential. And, that was kind of the first time i watched hitchcock movies from a perspective other than this is a thriller you know and was the first time i ever watched a series of hitchcock films and kind of from the beginning broke them down and um realized that the cinematic techniques that are are able you know and that that's also one of the reasons that i was i think not going to go into theater is that um the cinema of it you know the, Did that the, hit you
0: sort of somatically like you just loved it you felt yourself light up from that stuff
1: yeah. I mean, I remember watching Rear Window and realizing that you could never do something this influential on stage necessarily because of the choices that are being made of what to show you. you I know? know. And then, and then
0: Lynn manuel Miranda comes around and right. shows and then, us you that know, you actually Hamilton can. Happens. It yeah, turns and, out and, that you can.
1: And, and I just, I clearly was not, uh,
0: uh, Lin. Me neither. <laughs> uh, clearly nobody, I mean, that's the thing, right? Nobody is, uh, nobody's Lynn. So, um, But you say I most, you were like, I definitely kept it to myself.
1: So I'm really
0: fascinated by, by the kind, some people tell everybody I'm going to go to Hollywood and be famous. And some people have a very private secret dream. And, and I'm wondering what were your dreams at that time? Like, did you allow yourself the, I think I'm going to go make movies. Did you think, uh, I'm going to just like write in my notebooks. Like what were your, what was your self-talk like? Did you journal? And then were there any friends you confided this, this idea to?
1: For sure. I mean, I, my mom is from LA. And so I think I always knew I was going to end up in LA. Somehow. Oh, that's fa- that's um, yeah. So I, I sort of knew I was going to work in the industry somewhere. Um, my, my mom's, uh, almost her whole family, um, that's out here works in the industry as, um, my uncle is best boy and, you know, his, um, a lot of his family worked in electric, um, yeah. their whole, you know, I have my great, I think it's my great grandparents' marriage announcement in variety from the 30s or 40s. Let's uh, um, let's take
0: this moment to, to say, because people always wonder, so the best boy's title is really the gaffer's best boy. And right. the gaffer is the main electrician on set. They're the person responsible for the... I'm working with the cinematographer to deliver the lights in the way that the cinematographer and director want the lights. And the best boy uh, is the person charged with executing that stuff for the gaffer. Correct?
1: Correct. Correct. Um, And so uh, going back to your earlier question, so I think... um, you know, I used to come out to LA with my mom every spring break, you know, since I was in utero. So I I think everybody, all of my friends knew that I was probably going to end up in LA, but in terms of an articulated dream, like I'm going to go to Hollywood and I'm going to write and I'm going to do these things. That was nowhere um, near the awareness I had at that point. I think I really liked the idea of potentially being a director, but that's just because I'm I think at that time I was like, I'm bossy. That sounds like a good, right. good thing for me to yeah. do. Um, but I, and, and I didn't really know you know, what any of these things meant necessarily. Um, and, and so I was also really intimidated by a lot of the people that I was in school with and intimidated by this idea of failure. You know, I, I, Oh
0: yeah. Talk about that.
1: Well, I mean, it's the thing that, you don't want you don't necessarily want to discourage people from being or at least i don't want to discourage people from being intimidated by failure because i do think that foundational fear is at some point very helpful because you know what it means to be afraid that means that you know you want it bad enough so if you're afraid of failing that means that that's something you really care about and you really want but the thing is is when that gets in the way of actually pursuing it and i let it get in the way for you know almost 20. I left to write, I left a job to write full time when I was 27. And right.
0: I don't understand.
1: Was, yeah. And so I think that, that fear of what happens if I fail. And then the thing is, is that you fail once and you're like, oh, okay, the world didn't end.
0: Yes. You know? Yes. 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 That's so true. But, but wait, Liz, stay with the thing. Cause I talk about this a lot and it's so important. Like I can think of the kids in high school who were considered the superstars creatively. Mm-hmm. Like when you say you were intimidated, there were people who were like, well, that person's talented. And yeah. I thought they were almost um, almost anointed in a way, and that oh, I so. wasn't anointed. I, I knew I was a smart person, but I was like, I'm not one of the anointed ones. I was like you in the theater department, I could direct stuff. I was like active in it all, but I wasn't one of the golden children in that way. And I found it to have like, like a very lingering effect Um, on me in that it took a long time for me to have real confidence in my creative vision uh, because those people were the artists and I wasn't an artist. And I'm wondering if that hit you in that way too.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I felt like I was always not good enough. Like I was good and I was smart and I could say interesting things, but I was never, as you said, the anointed one. I was never the one that somebody was going to point at and be like, this girl's going somewhere, you know, and, yes. and not that they were like, wow, she's a loser. But it was just like, you That's, know, yeah, right. I wasn't the person who was identified to, you know, take the reins and go somewhere. And that I think fueled both resentment and like, I bought into it. I was like, well, if they don't think I am, then I guess I'm not.
0: The buying into it is really hard, right? Yeah. Um When you, but well, I, I know like for, for me, there were a couple of kids who were incredibly precociously Talented. I had one of them on on my podcast, this friend of mine named Peter Zizzo. He's uh, he's written like eight songs that Celine Dion sang. He wrote the Blues Clues theme. He's like an incredibly talented person. But he was like almost fully formed artistically yes. in many ways at 14 years old. And like he could write huge songs and he could write a libretto if he had to, and he could write a whole novel if he had to. Like, and at 14, I could barely get myself onto the school bus with my belt through the loops yeah. of my pants. And 100%. the difference was so great. I was like, well, that's what an artist looks like. I could never do that. Now, the other side is for him, the pressure of all that almost broke him. So I'm sure you don't, but you know what I mean? You don't, um, we don't as, as the, as the one who's not anointed, you never think, I never thought about the pressure on those people at all. Well,
1: we're. So I was just we say, we're, we're all living as the stars of our own movies, you know, so it's, it's hard when you're the star of your own movie to put yourself in the yep. shoes of someone else. I mean, I went to high school with Justin Paul of um Pasek and Paul, who Justin at, you know, as you said, like 14, right. uh, was fully formed. And, you know, when he... Um, you know he did dear Evan Hansen with his, right, his yeah, partner no. and 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 great showman and all these things and when he started to break they had a I can't remember it off the top of my head but they had their first sort of show that everybody started talking about and I was like well justin what took you so long because it's been uh, like three years uh, since we graduated you know and um he was just so fully formed but also driven and um I think very articulate in in what he wanted to do, explore oh, this makes so much sense,
0: Liz, that in relief to that, you would look at yourself as just like a normal person and not, that makes total sense. Cause someone like that is like on afterburners in a way it's for like, sure. just it's just moving in a way that for you, you were moving at a more human speed, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the funny thing is, is that, um, he and I actually were both nominated for golden globes in 2017. Awesome. Um, for he, he was nominated for I believe it was the greatest showman and um we were or was it I'm not sure what I think it was and then we were nominated for the post. Yes. And we saw each other like afterwards and it was this very wonderful three sixty moment of like, okay, well I got here. You know, like we're Oh that's here at incredible. The same time.
0: Had you stayed in fun. touch or not stayed in touch?
1: We have, whenever, you know, we, we, I would say we stay in touch, you know, in terms of social media and yeah, things yeah, yeah. like that. Um, but we're not like super close, but whenever we run into each other, it's always very fun. And no, but I nice meant before that,
0: had you been in touch? Oh, no, like, we weren't.
1: No, I mean, sort of social media, like Instagram, like, you know, he had a baby. Uh, Yay, how that's not, yeah. Oh, that's
0: so great. What a wonderful moment. Uh, so yeah. happy for you that you had that moment, like of all of it, but that's a, I understand why that would be a significant moment.
1: It was somewhere. great. It was really nice.
0: you go to college and you're like, I'm going to find my way into the movie business, but writer wasn't on the, wasn't at top of mind.
1: Not necessarily. I, I mean, again, this goes back to the intimidation. I was really afraid of failing. I was really afraid of somebody telling me I wasn't good enough. And I thought putting myself out there, I mean, writing is, it doesn't matter what you're writing. It's any genre, anything, it's personal. And that was really scary for me. And um, so I went to Pratt Institute undergrad, and I studied film there. And my mom then had moved back to LA when I went to college. And so I would spend every summer out in LA. And I was interning with production companies. And I interned at this place called Whitewater Films, which is run by Rick Rosenthal. And he had, um, he, he was a, he had, he's a director uh, and a producer, and he was producing at the time uh, a few different films. And I just sort of watched what creative producing was and yes. putting things together. And I thought, oh, that's something that's really interesting. Then I get to play with everybody. Then I get to be creative. But it's not necessarily all on me. Um, and so I, I really thought that's what I was going to do. So kind of from age... 20 on I or 19 on I thought I'm going to be a producer exclusively let's talk a little
0: bit more about the fear because it's this, mm-hmm. I live in this place of uh, you know this was my formative story and uh and a lot of people who do what we do actually they found a way to get past that fear sooner mm-hmm. they, they just had different self-talk so walk me through what the sort of stops and starts were for you or when you say you had this fear that kind of stopped you from doing it of either failure or, uh, being exposed or not being good enough. Did you have an awareness? Cause I started to get an awareness Liz that I would be sad if I didn't mm-hmm. find a way to become an artist, I'd be mm-hmm. too sad and I would become bitter. Basically. Mm-hmm. I knew it at a certain mm-hmm. moment. Older than you, actually. I was thirty; you were twenty-seven. But it, you know, it, it would, it would um, sometimes in the middle of the night, I would find myself writing, and then in the morning, I just wouldn't show it to anybody or something oh, like. For sure. How did, yeah. so did that stuff happen? For like what? How did it? How, what was the internal turmoil like? How did it manifest? I guess the question.
1: I mean, I think it manifested in in being bitter, in feeling like, uh, yeah, you oh. know. I I was working at a production company and I would be reading specs or samples or, you know, screenplays that were on the blacklist or, you know, uh, or being produced. And I mean, you know, this like about 10% of them are good. Um, And that's not even
0: true, by the way, that you just modulated. No, that's not true. Like three percent of them are good.
1: There you go. It's maybe it's I, I I'll be I would say like ten percent can be good. Sure. Like ten percent could get there. Um, but it's a very small percentage that's good. And so it became bitter not because I was like, I'm so talented, I can do this. It was like, Well, if they're doing it, why can't I try oh, it?
0: That's that so, bitter anger at yourself is the worst, isn't it? So that's like what why exactly.
1: It was exactly. like it wasn't. why am
0: I not trying? Like at exactly. least Exactly. It was oh. like, What
1: am I so afraid of? What am yes. I I'm afraid of you know, it was really like, I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of telling somebody telling me that the stories I want to tell aren't important or things like that, which is all bullshit at the end of the day. It's just that you, it's all you know, are, it's fear and you're looking for reasons to do literally anything else than expose yourself or put yourself out there. And so I, it got to kind of a breaking point that I was like, I'm good at my job and I, I could keep doing my job. But if I don't try this then I'm going to wake up one day and be miserable because and and I think this bitterness will just be eating away at me because I I will be mad at myself that I never tried and I, I've said this before but I think the second that you give in to opening that door that you've been terrified of opening, um, another door opens and it's something that like you know talk about higher power, universe, whatever it is, but that there is. You have to give into it a little bit, and then something's going to open back up to you.
0: I it, it was hard for me to open it up. I had to do morning pages and all sorts of stuff because I was right. so blocked. But yes, once you start doing it, it flows.
1: Well, and it's and it's not necessarily even what you think it is. It may not even be writing. You know, for me, yeah. I left to um, I left to write full time. Um, what, like I had just turned twenty seven, and two months later, I met. The guy who became my husband, and I don't know if I'd been in an open place to meet somebody and date somebody and be able for a relationship because I was so, like, you know, curled up into a tiny, f- afraid ball in the core, like in the fetal position in the corner of my brain, not letting myself be open. And then subsequently, you know, I spent two years being afraid to write the post, basically and terrified and intimidated of it. And then I wrote the post and you know, then X, Y, and Z happened. So I, I think it's not the, the the thing that I'm constantly trying to remind myself is the thing that you're doing that you're afraid of may not be the thing that's going to be successful, may not be the thing right. that you want it to, oh, may not sure. be the thing that you have expectations for it. Don't have expectations. Just do what you're afraid to do and see what happens because you might fail with that, I mean the, the the script that I wrote that that kind of got me my managers that gave me you know uh, uh, I sold a I had a writing partner at the time and I sold a um, a pilot to a production company um, for development that that script I look back on it it's not very good but it was the thing I was really afraid to write it was the thing that like got my voice out there and it didn't get me the post it didn't get me. A career but it got me a step and then it got me to be more open to writing things and to be more open to seeing what's that's out really there smart. Being- that's
0: so smart yeah this, this i was talking to this guy rich Kleiman earlier today on, on his podcast mm-hmm. he's kevin durant's agent and um yeah. rich was like oh yeah, i
1: can talk about basketball for about two and a half hours great yeah me too yes we that. could do yeah. that
0: um but um rich said when he, he hears somebody talk about getting rejected like uh the the script gets re- your first script gets rejected four times he's like well, that's one way to think of it, but the better way to think of it is you're in. The, suddenly, you're in the game. Yeah. Yes, you're getting rejected, but you're getting. You are in the conversation now. You've started the beginnings of a career. It's hard to tell yourself that, but it is true. But this moment, Liz, when you you're not a Celtics fan though, are you? Because of the Connecticut thing. Sorry, I'm you not. said basketball. I'm not. Don't are worry. You a, are you a Knicks fan?
1: Oh no, no, no.
0: You're that's a Lakers it. person.
1: Uh, no, I'm actually interestingly. Um, a Golden State fan, which is, there's a really long way around describing how I became a Golden State fan. You're just a uh, heat-seeking
0: which, missile is the answer. You're uh, no, It's because- It's, a co- it's just because
1: tree situation, which is I'm a huge Greg Popovich fan. Yes. And um, so I kind of follow the coaches that come from that tree, but also my, uh, really specifically were um, UNC fans. Uh, college basketball is sure. enormous in my household. Yeah. Harrison Barnes playing for the Warriors for a while was very helpful until he lost us a championship and it was fine. I,
0: no, um, I understand everything. I'm, I could talk about Grayson Allen for a long time right oh. now, which I'm sure you hate because he was a Duke player, so you must hate him a lot. Uh, I don't but, know what you're
1: talking about. You mean tripping people for fun? <laughs> what yeah, are you talking about?
0: And, and then just making uh, memes out of it. I read an interview you you did where you said that you wrote the script in 2012 and you sent it to some people and you sort of, the way you, I read the story, you sort of outsourced the responsibility for whether you were a screenwriter to these people. Uh, First of all, is that accurate? And second of all, if they had said, and so the story goes, you sent it to these people, you said, speak harsh words to me. Tell me if I should not quit my job or if I can quit my job to write. And they said, quit your job. My question is, do you really think if they said you're not good, you would have given up on this dream? And why did you decide to outsource that question?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think, I think there's a little bit of, of I, the confidence I had in outsourcing it is that I had the inkling that it was good. I kind of, I kind of yep. knew. And the script that I wrote was um, not the post. This was this was the first screenplay basically I had written um, and toiled over. Um, and I, I knew it wasn't like great, but I knew the dialogue was good and I knew that the characters were good. And um, I think I had a bit of confidence in the question that I was asking in, in this outsourcing. So I kind of if I, if they had said no, I would have been heartbroken. And honestly, I think because I had that confidence and if they had said no, I probably would have given up on it because if what I thought I had written was good and two um, extremely trusted people in my, in my life, both work and personally read that and said, you are way off the mark. Um, I think that I probably would have given up, but I also think, you know, in paths not taken, if I'd given up, I might've gone back to it at some point or maybe I would have been resilient and done it. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, at that point, I was pretty locked on to like, this was something I wanted to do and something that I wanted to try and something that I felt pretty confident yeah. I could get better at. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I, when I'm, you framed I might it as better.
0: should I quit my job though? Like I know when I started writing the first script, I didn't quit my job. I just knew I was going to take two hours a day and do it. And, it seems like quitting the job puts so much fucking pressure on on um, yeah. the writer. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think my mom always likes to say that I'm a very serious person and I've always been a very serious person. And I think for a long time and probably still often, I operate in extremes that are not necessarily helpful. Yeah, And I, th- you know, so I just, uh, quitting my job felt like a no brainer to me in terms of, I want to do this full time. I want to give it a shot. I also was 27 and had no concept of like really, I was like, it'll work. You know, I'll quit my job. I'll sell yeah. a script. I'll go out there. You know, this was a time when a lot of young writers were really booming. And and I was like, this is totally what's gonna happen. And I made two mistakes, I think, in that thought process. One, truly not understanding that things take time and that um sometimes it's good that they take time. I think time is really important. If I had not, I would not have written the post in 2012, um, e- either the way or the the caliber that it eventually became yes. because I needed life experience. I needed failure experience. I needed to know what I really wanted. Um, the other thing I think is that you know, it's it's interesting when you put the pressure on yourself in that way because it's all self created. There's no pressure from any. There was no pressure from anybody else sitting next to me being like, "You have to be successful right now." Um, and what that pressure ended up doing was, I basically spent two years looking at what was selling and what people were buying, and I was like, "That's what I have to write," and that's mm. what that's what's selling, and that's what people want to see, and that's what people want to read, and so I tried to be other writers. I tried to write things that were not things I was necessarily interested in or, and because I wasn't interested in, I wasn't good at. And the post was, you know, uh, going back to being, you know, fascinated by seventies thrillers. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, the, it really came down to Kay Graham and and my interest in her. But that was not a movie or a script that was selling at that time. I mean, it's a '70s thriller with two people in their 50s and nobody kisses. So I was like, "This is not going to happen." Um, but I just really wanted to write it, and I thought it was the best showcase for what I was capable of doing. And it was also, you know, in terms of living at extremes, it was also this was now four years after I'd left my job that I that I sold the post. And I didn't really sit down to write it until about six months earlier. And I kind of said to myself, like, if this doesn't work, I'm going to go find another job because I'm not – if I write something that I think is my voice and it doesn't work, then maybe that's a sign from the universe I'm supposed to go do something else. Or I get a job and I write,
0: you know, two hours a day or I, you know, see what else I can do. I mean, you said so many fascinating things in there that we should unpack for a second because – the thing I've said that like Craig Mazin quotes still to this day, all the time is calculate less. Mm -hmm. And I give that advice. Anytime I speak to a room full of people who want to be screenwriters or who are, which is you can't actually guess or game the market. So Mm -hmm. then, and what, and when you're writing for me, anyway, when I'm writing from that place, all the only toolkit I have then is like my intellect and craft but I don't have my point of view and my point of view is what gives me my voice. And that's the thing that, um, is able to uh, break through the noise. I think, uh, if I'm just trying to write what I think somebody else wants, I'm not using my point of view, uh, really Mm -hmm. in the way that I should. So when you were doing that gaming it out thing, what were the rewards for you during it? What kept you doing that? But and then, what were kind of the moments of realization that, oh, this actually isn't alive in the way that it needs to be alive? Hey, did you like read something? like You know, for me, like watching Quiz Show, I was like, well, mm-hmm. that no part of Quiz Show seems like a movie on paper. But look what Paul Atanasio was able to do, mm-hmm. and like. Mm-hmm what happened that made you go like okay i have to actually now just do what i want to do
1: well in terms of benefits i think it was ultimately that that i that i realized that what i was writing was okay and not anything that i was going to call home about you know and um i think what you said about point of view is absolutely correct you know you are as a writer you you are your point of view period yeah. you the way that you and I and Craig Mazin would write the same idea is vastly different because of our points of view and trying to echo someone else's point of view. First of all, you're never going to do it as good as them. And second of all, you're not going to be your best period. Yeah. Um, You
0: can, you can carry an influence. So like I've read your words about Nora and, uh, not Nick and Nora, Nora Ephron and, mm-hmm. and Sorkin, or like the way I feel about David Mamet, I might want to, uh, when I was younger, for sure, I might want a the rhythm of what I do, the thing that might make me happy as a writer is to sound like David Mamet, but um, in chasing that, if you do it on a thing that compels you and fascinates you, your own voice will break through in some way, mm-hmm. maybe absorbing the best of that stuff that you love, Right.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, for me, the obviously everyone talks about Sorkin's dialogue and the pitter patter of it. And I I think it's, you know, it's, it's, um, incomparable to, to, in my opinion, to, to a lot of other, um, ways that people write dialogue at the same time, the thing for me that I, I found the most influential is his exploration of character and how simply he does it. And that he has very complex characters that, that actually are quite simply, uh, are are, are simply depicted. You know, I think Michael J. Fox's character in The American President is a really good example. Not a lot of screen time, don't know anything about his personal life. You know, um, Uh, we know one
0: thing about his personal life. Yes, we do.
1: Well, he goes on dates. He never... Yeah, uh, uh, Sorry, uh, he goes on
0: dates, but it's all soft unless it's confirmed 15 minutes exactly. before. So exactly, we do, exactly. there is something we, get we know one about. Thing. A huge we get window one thing. into his personal
1: life. We get a huge window <laughs> in his personal life and he also doesn't ever buy a woman flowers. So there yes. you go. Yes, yes. Um, very true. But having said that, like, so what he is an extremely fully formed character yes. with that one window into his personal life and the way he speaks to the president, the, what he talks to the president about. Yes. And later, obviously his speech about, you know, he's a citizen and he's, and Michael J. Fox, Andrew Shepard is his president. That for me is, I'm um, so extremely good. influential. And I think simplicity is really, for me personally, it's very important because if your characters are, I think it's specific to film, at least for me, um, because I think in television, obviously it's, you have many, many more hours to, to have complexity and, and, um, your audience to catch up to that complexity. Uh, Um, but in, in film, I think, um, the simplicity of your characters. And if I can know everything about a character from one scene, then I've done a good job. And that doesn't mean that like, they don't, have a journey. That doesn't mean that they don't have interesting um, views. You don't have interesting views in their life. And that doesn't mean they don't change. But you know, when I was writing The Post, it had originally started and still, still does variably with um, the relationship between Bradley and Kay starts at that breakfast. And it was always a really important scene because if you don't understand their relationship from that scene, the movie yes. is over. And if you don't understand what she wants from him and what he wants from her and how they think of each other, the movie's over. Yes. And that for me is really what I, I obviously, you know, we can talk about, as I said, is dialogue for years. But I think the the character is something that I find, the character development is something I find hugely influential. And I think that is something that comes from going back to your question of those four years of trying to write other people or when you don't, it kind of um, incepts your brain at a certain point when you're trying to write in someone else's voice. And it, it, you realize what you're not good at and why they're good yeah. at. And in doing that, the best thing you can take away from it is what am I good at and what am I not good at? That is the best thing you can take away from it. And that doesn't mean you can't get better. That doesn't mean you can't get you. you can't are analytic? So
0: you're analytical in that way. You're thinking about that stuff. I would say for me, it's all feeling. Like even the thing yeah. you're talking about, about the characters and the breakfast, like I will tell you, I am the least intellectual even if my characters are very smart and they speak like intellectuals sometimes when I'm actually writing, I am truly not thinking like in that way. I am just um, I'm just trying to feel something and um, connect to something in a, in a way that it feels alive to me. And it's just alive or dead basically. And if it's alive, I've learned to trust that I'll solve the rest of it. But then a lot of writers who are very successful, are very analytical. I'm just not, like, I never think, oh, about the scene and the way you said, it. I'm fascinated. But you will actually think about it, like, okay, what has to happen with these two characters? Like, I will think um, there has to be conflict in a scene and somebody has to, they have, people have to change. I understand, you know, uh, I'm professional like you are, but, <laughs> but, but, um, but I am not really thinking about building them in exactly the way you were just talking about. Are you always thinking through your stuff that way?
1: I think, well, it's a little bit, how, uh, it's part of what you're saying and, and what I'm saying, which I think is like, I'm very analytical when it comes to starting a project. So uh, in terms of writing an outline, in terms of breaking yes. something, yes, yes, I'm very analytical and think of it in that way, which is so for the breakfast scene, when I was breaking the the post, I was like, how do I get, and really the breakfast scene came out of um, this need for them to be on the same page within the first 15 pages of sure. the script yes. and all of this. And then, how is this scene going to set up the characters? And da 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 da. And so, it's, it's you know, it's like a, it looks like a murder wall of a serial killer in my mm-hmm. office. And I'm trying to connect all these dots. And it, so, it's super analytical at the start. And then when I'm writing, I try and do what you're talking about, which is find something and feel something. And yes, feel. yes.
0: Uh, make, okay, that makes complete sense. I'm glad yeah. I asked the follow-up. Yep, that makes total sense to me. No, no, no. Of course, in outlining, yes, of course, in outlining, you're thinking. I'm also thinking about in outlining how to structurally make something, how to structurally make something work. Though my outlines have a lot of dialogue in them because mm. I think through dialogue. That's I guess what I. I think by writing dialogue in a way, it, it helps me to think a story through.
1: It's interesting. I, I feel like I do that. Sometimes I'll have like a piece of dialogue that I'm yes. like, I know this has to be here and that will shape oh, yeah. a scene yes. or it'll even create a character. Yes. I, I wrote this movie about, um, that you mentioned at the top, I wrote this movie about Lee Miller earlier this year. And um, there, there, I, I, she's sort of... um. An an anomaly of a person Uh, She's a real person And and she's a person of contradiction And I was finding it very, very hard To nail her down And now, you know, if you put a gun to my head I couldn't tell you what this piece of dialogue was But there was something that I was having a conversation with one of the producers And we were talking about her Oh, I remember what it was We were talking about her And this line of dialogue Which was like the only people that worry about Who I'm sleeping with Are the ones who are jealous of it some it sounds better. It's written better on the page. That's a bad line of dialogue, but it's like around those lines. And, that's not
0: a bad line of dialogue. Yeah, go ahead.
1: And I realized like, oh, that's who she is. Is um, she's yeah. confident and aware and likes to play with the idea that people are jealous of her or competitive or any of those things and not in a malicious way but in a fun way and suddenly that unlocked this character to me. So I think it comes it, it, it can come to me kind of from anywhere. I, I try not to write dialogues my dialogue my own cuz then I just will never finish the outline. Yes. So I I admire that because I just it's for me it's the same reason I have to do a vomit draft is because if I go back and edit while I'm writing, I'll never finish anything. And I just have to get it out there. Uh,
0: There are a few things, and this is what's great is if you're someone who's interested in screenwriting, like even the thing you said about the simplicity of those characters, like when I see those characters I think that Michael J. Fox's character, Anna DeVere Smith and Samantha Mathis, that's all, that is all Nick and Nora stuff. That's all oh, absolutely. Um, Sorkin having a lot of fun with this rapid fire dialogue and a way to sort of have a Greek chorus that's happening. Of course, you're right there. you, you, we, we understand them. But I think my, one of my, ch- the challenges is to make things simple enough. And I don't ever think, I don't think about it enough. I'm... I'm going to find it as it, as it, as it happens and let it reveal itself, which is why I made a lot of independent, I mean, I made a lot of indie movies before. Mm-hmm. So there are all these different sides of the street people w- work on.
1: Absolutely. And none of them are wrong. That's the best part. It's that's, you know, that's the best part of writing. And yes. to everybody out there, anybody out there who wants to be a writer, who's struggling to be a writer, there is no right way to do any of this.
0: Oh like, yeah. And let me just say, there are these yeah. moments in your stuff that are so, so like in the post that I, like, you know. The moment when Michael Stuhlbarg had, takes the... There's just a little moment between Stuhlbarg and his wife and uh, Graham at the table when he takes out the times, he can't resist, the wife's annoyed, the thing. So much is revealed by the characters in this tiny little gesture, and this tiny little moment, and the whole dynamic, and then what it forces Graham to do. And that that is a beautiful moment of screenwriting. So well-directed, but also a gorgeous moment of screenwriting because it... Um, all the stuff that was loaded from Ben into her that she'd sort of fought back on. And then you have this moment and then she makes that call. I, that is just, just incredibly great screenwriting. And, um,
1: thank you. I have to shout out Josh Singer on that one too. Uh,
0: well, okay. So I want to, I want to ask you uh, about this. Cause I remember with our first movie, uh, I was, uh, the things I did, which I could tell you another time, cause this is your show, not mine uh, today. Um, the things David and I did to make sure we wouldn't be rewritten by anybody were insane and including finding a way to hire the director, even though we weren't producers on the movie. So uh, how, you know, you write this thing, it attracts Steven Spielberg. How does it come down to you? Like, Hey, we're going to partner you with, you're going to keep you involved, but we're going to bring on someone else. And also emotionally, how do you manage all that? I, I, may, I would have gone fucking crazy. I would have been like, I got Steven Spielberg and Meryl Streep. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> how? I would have. I mean, that is what I would, I'm telling, like, literally, I would have said that to everybody and gotten in fights with people. So even to Steven Spielberg, I would have said it. that's my unfortunate nature. So, but, but So talk me through your mindset and then how you figured out how to language everything to keep yourself involved the whole time.
1: I mean, to say that I wasn't emotional about it would be a lie. You know, when you get the... It basically, at that point, Stephen, Tom, and Meryl had signed on. We were going into production in less than 10 weeks. Um, Stephen had another movie that he was prepping to shoot in Italy that he um, couldn't cast the lead role in. And so he basically lifted the entire production and moved it to New York. And we were building sets like five days after Stephen signed on. So the the ramp up to, to the the... Traject trajectory of this film was um, just insanely fast and and kind of wildly out of control at times, um, and so Josh got brought on. I want uh, two or three weeks after Stephen had signed on, and I was definitely emotional about it. I was, def- I you know, I to say that Josh and I are extremely close now, and that the production of that and the rewriting of it and everything was an amazing collaborative process is all true going into it and getting the call the first time. No, I wasn't happy about it because I wanted, I wanted the glory. I wanted everybody to understand that like I, this was my baby. This was, you know, I'm sure you've had this experience before. It's like, you sell something. It's amazing. You take these meetings and they're like, what's your dream project? Let's do it. I had made my dream project. This was it. This was the movie that I had been thinking about. And for you years. land Steven
0: Spielberg. When Spielberg read it, who did you get to talk to him shortly thereafter? Because you'd sold it, right? The, so you you yeah. sold it not to him. Yeah. So you, I saw and, Amy
1: Pascal bought it. And you have no protections
0: room. then. It's your first screenplay. So there's nothing that sells. There's nothing you can really do to protect yourself from being rewritten. Did you have convos with Amy though, when you sold it? Like, where oh yeah. Oh about-
1: yeah. I mean, Amy, Amy involved me in, in um, all, every step of that process. It was keeping me up to date about where it was going. It w- went to Fox. I ended up having, um, you know, a script meeting with Stacey Snyder and Roybal, uh, Mark Roybal, who was there at the time and, um, and Amy. And so like, I was very involved. I was doing rewrites on the script. Um, and then, you know, there, it was sort of a confluence of events. And we had gone out to a few directors because Stephen was unavailable. And yes. everyone passed because they said that it wasn't um, timely sure. or relevant, which is slightly hilarious yeah, it's in ridiculous. retrospect. It's
0: absurd, yeah.
1: Um, and then, sort of, Stephen um, heard about the script the same week that Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep heard about it. And it was, I mean, I think it was like a 72 hour process where they all read it and signed on. Jesus and then Christ. it was going. I met with Steven um, a few days after that and had, you know, a script meeting with him and Amy and um, Christy McCoskell-Krieger, who's Steven's producing partner. And, you know, I had never obviously met Steven Spielberg. I never course. talked to him. I'm sitting across from him. He has my script open and we're doing page notes on it. And it was the most intimidating, exhilarating meeting I'd ever yeah, had in my
0: incredible. life. Incredible. Just incredible. Um, right. And, 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 but at that time you're like saying to yourself every screen at us, God, I hope I get to be the one to carry this the whole way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, I don't want to do anything to fuck it up. And at the same time, you know, here's the thing that hindsight's 2020, 20, right? I was so um, in my head cocky about the fact that like I had written this script that these people had signed on to. Of course, I'm going to stay on. In retrospect, there was no chance in hell that I was going to be the only writer that stayed on to that project. Not only had I never written a produced film, I'd never written a Steven Spielberg film. I'd never written a film that needed to be produced in 10 weeks that also starred Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and involved true real-life people and also the New York Times and the Washington Post. So there was a lot of pressure writing on this film and writing on the shoulders of And Stephen. so how did
0: you manage it? A lot of writers would have gotten themselves tossed off the thing once Josh came on. I know now mm-hmm. you guys are close. And and Josh makes total sense. He had written the best newspaper movie other than all the President's Men ever up to that point. Mm-hmm. Like, so it makes total sense that Josh would come onto it in a certain way if I'm Steven Spielberg. But what- Absolutely. But from your perspective, did they come to you and say, but we want you to do it with him? Or did they come to you and say, he's rewriting you? Like
1: They said um, that they wanted me to do it with him. And Josh and I then spoke over, he was living in New York at the time. And so we spoke over the phone. Um, you know, I think the first knee jerk reaction was I was really upset because yes. nobody went, by the way, I I've been, been replaced on movies since. I've also rewritten movies by other people since. Um, I, you know, this is a part of the process and it sucks and it never feels good. You know, it's, it's never yes. a good feeling. right? Um, and it's just, so this was just the first time I had that and it, it, what, it didn't feel great in terms of how I stayed on. You know, I think I, I had a really good relationship with Steven and Christy and Amy, and I had met Tom at that point and had heard from Merrill, And so like, I think it was, you know, it was, um, it, it didn't really make sense to, to kick me off, I think, because I was also there to learn. And I made no, right. that. Did you say to clear. yourself,
0: right. So this is great because did you kind of quickly or quickly enough shift into, well, they're pairing with a guy who just won the Academy Award for writing a newspaper yeah. movie. So yeah. like, perhaps there will be a way that I learn something from this.
1: I took it completely as this is an opportunity for me to learn. I took it, uh, you know, That's I'm amazing. here to help. I'm here to make sure that, you know, the integrity of the screenplay is there and that my words are there and Josh's words are there. And this is, once Josh signed on and I, you know, had my night of not feeling great about it, the next day I was like, okay, we're off to the races. We have to make this work. And and Josh also was not exclusive in this. You know, he was very much wanting to preserve what was there and to help and to, you know, be, I think, Although he would never ever say this in a million in a million years, but kind of mentor me through this process, um, and I mean, so it's an
0: amazing thing that you guys did it together then and 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 shared credit and got to have all the rewards together. I mean, it's amazing and wonderful.
1: It was great, you know. Truly, I mean, we were on set for nine weeks, and both of us were there. And um, were you at all the? So
0: you were at rehearsals with the actors too.
1: We, there are no rehearsals, so we didn't do rehearsals.
0: Blocking rehearsals in the morning, though, right? Yes. No, just-
1: yeah, we do blocking and rehearse, but it's kind of just this is where you go. This is what we're gonna do. You know, they they watch. Steven and everybody watches them run through the scene once and then then they go off. It's a pretty well-oiled machine no, of course. in Spielberg-verse. Yes. Um, Were
0: you on the set of Mindhunter for blocking rehearsals in the morning or to writers? I wasn't.
1: I was on set for, for – we did rehearsals, like table read rehearsals for about two and a half weeks um, before production started. And then I unfortunately had another commitment that I had to come out uh, back to LA for. So I was not on set for Mindhunter, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that seems unfortunate to get to watch David after Spielberg. You almost were done then as far as having to sort of like t- apprentice under any directors, you know?
1: I mean, it was interesting. I actually met David and started working on Mindhunter week two of The Post. Um, I had to- oh, wow. We did our first 10 days of production, and then I flew back to LA for a week because I had to work on something else, and I met David- um, and he was at that point looking for, you know, freelance writers to, to just write episodes of Mindhunter. And I was like, do I write you a check now? Like, what do you need me to do? That's I'm funny. here to do this. Um, and then that turned into um, a much, much more concrete collaboration because there's not a writer's room. There wasn't really a writer's room for season two. It was just myself and two other writers and David. Um, and David doesn't write, but he was there obviously to break the story and, and you know, cr- um, help. Help us kind of craft it and um or craft it and we were are to you so him. sad
0: that the BTK thing is never going to get told?
1: Uh, you know i I was pretty involved in writing the BTK sequence, and yes i'm I'm very good at um distancing myself from this stuff uh, uh, that was the I, only I'm so thing. I will
0: say as a fan, I'm just insane that I'm not going to get to see him tell that story
1: I, you know what I mean as a fan, I'm livid that I don't get to see the rest of it um but as a writer <laughs> writing BTK was one of the most dramatic scenes, yes, like awful, week awful. of my life um so that but also like really fun and scary and you know that that actually was one of the most fun things is the opening sequence of the the show of season 2 is the, the discovery of BTK in the bathroom and um that was something i i had helped helped out with and Was was almost exactly pitched, um, shot for shot by David of how the reveal would happen, and and writing that and sort of being able to translate his cinematic language to the page was just a really interesting exercise and really um, difficult. I prior to writing in television, I didn't write um, camera moves or, or any, or anything sort of directorially into scripts. And David kind of, um, helped me break out of that and, and get into his brain or, or at least see his brain from afar. And, um, writing that sequence was really interesting to sort of, and then seeing how he translated on screen was really interesting.
0: I, uh, yeah, those questions online when people talk about whether you should write camera and is all, yes, write Camera. And if it makes sense, if it's the way you think, um, well, and in something. television,
1: if you're in a showrunner, right, Cameron? There you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, you can also. I think if you're a good screenwriter and like you could do it in a way. You know, if, if Tony Gilroy wants to do that in a script, uh, he can, whether he's directing yeah. the thing or not. You Absolutely. Know, because-
1: I mean, I I think it's again, it, there's there's no rules. I, I I think as a young writer, I find it slightly presumptive when you're directing the the screen the the movie on this page, and if it feels like too much, then and I'm. Not sure. And it, so much of reading a screenplay for me is about imagination and how I'm seeing the movie in my head. And sometimes if there's too much in there, then it detracts. Wait, from that. do and, you think
0: close on and angle on count as camera?
1: Um, angle on does for me weirdly, but close on doesn't. I don't know why the, I would split hairs on that, but
0: no, that's they, fair. Go ahead. I use all. I mean, I've always used all that shit. But I, like, I, but all I
1: also, just- I, for me, close on. It, I usually use if we're talking about uh, the way, at least how I've used it in writing, is like there's something I need the audience to remember that's going to come up in a hundred pages, sure. you yes. know, or or it's a re- it's a reveal of something, or or I'm hiding a reveal of something that feels then that that's why I think that doesn't feel necessarily like camera direction because it's very specific emotionally and narratively that like we need to remi- remember this. Um, but I do, you know, I, there's also like smash cut and all of these things that are in there that they're fun sometimes.
0: How did you, yes. How did you keep yourself? I'm just taking in the fact that you said week two of the post is when you met David to start figuring out if you were going to work with on mind Hunter. I mean, for someone who couldn't sell anything really, or you sold stuff, but nothing happened for four or five years. That's a pretty heady switch.
1: Oh, yeah. It was.
0: Um, How did you, I mean, ma- like, were you, keep, did you keep cool during it? Did, were you getting any sleep? Were you, were you so amped up every night? Like, what was that
1: like? I, I was not, I basically didn't sleep for like a year. I okay, also good. got married like yes. three months after we wrapped the post. So I, and I wrote Longshot that summer before I got married. So I yeah. did, I did the, we did production on the post. I started writing Mindhunter. Hunter. Um, I started writing my first episode of Mindhunter. Hunter. And then, went and wrote long shot and then got married and then did press for the post. And so there was sort of this, and then went into rehearsals for Mindhunter. So there was like this 18 month period where I didn't really sleep. And then I went on a delayed honeymoon for three weeks and I slept for like four days and finally kind of began to process everything that had happened. The, Cause here's the, here's the con was that I didn't sleep and I didn't see anybody that I knew for, that like any of my friends for about a year and a half um, barely saw my husband my husband also works in television so he was on location for a lot of it and then um and then the pro of it was that i actually didn't have time to process it emotionally so yeah. i didn't i didn't have time to go like holy shit i just walked off set with steven spielberg and i'm in a meeting with david fincher like 3 days later i just was like this is, i had tunnel vision i was like i want to write on this so i'm going to write on this and I, if i have the opportunity i'm going to do this and i was kind of just in almost Um, auto mode and just trying to be as good at my job as humanly possible at that point and to learn and soak everything up. And so I didn't have time to like pinch myself and say, oh my God, this is happening. And then get scared because I was like, holy shit, this is happening. I really don't want to fuck it up. So I I just kind of was, you know, trying to just do the best job possible. And then 18 months later, realize what had happened and was
0: exhausted by it all. That makes sense. And also it was incredible that like you kind of got through it, got to the other side and now have have kept it all going somehow. What? Let, let's end by talking about, well, first I have to say, so did you have to read all the BTK books? See, I, can't, I won't read them. They disturb me too much. I can't read. Did you have to read the books and shit?
1: I, I read one of them. Luckily, Courtney Miles, who's the head writer, was an EP on, on- – Mindhunter. Hunter. Um, she had done an enormous amount of research um, so before I had gotten to. there, so I had sort of Cliff's notes to read. But I've had I real nightmares
0: go, from the stuff I've read from that, for real. Yeah, and I don't I ha- get nightmares like that, and I've had terrifying nightmares about the things he did to people. It's just, uh, yeah, but-
1: I had to, um, I had to look at the photos, what that was actually the most traumatizing for me. Was him in his yeah. full. Oh God! Like Kabuki, almost makeup, and and that that was traumatizing, and um, all of the souvenirs and things like that. So I had to see that, but luckily Courtney bore the brunt of doing a lot of the research.
0: So you come out of the other side of all this. The Mindhunter Hunter season was a great success. Um, other than the fact that David doesn't want to, has other things he wants to do. Maybe he'll get. Back. I mean, I've also as a, talked to an actor who was around the show about various things and. I realized they were all too young now, um, so maybe he'll do BTK in eight years um, because that's right. It, only Goff's character actually was there when they caught him. I think Holt's character wasn't there when they caught him. Um,
1: the, the true story, the two characters are based on, yes, I, I think that's true.
0: I think that's just the truth of it. I'm. This is just my <laughs> own detective work trying to figure out like it's possible David could go back when I thought about the actor's ages and stuff, I was like, oh, he could go back and do it. But, um, but you come out the other side of this stuff. You're nominated for golden globe award. You are, you know, you become a very in demand screenwriter. What do you, as you look at the next five years, how do you look at the next five years? Is it, you know, the business has shifted so much, even from when you wrote the post on spec. I mean, if people they weren't making movies like that, then, um, for sure. There are no, you know, there's no movie theaters for the next little while. Um, so what, how do you look at the next five years of where you want to go and what you want to do?
1: It's a great question. You know, I think from pretty much the selling of The Post until um, the middle of this year, I had a slightly chaotically but organized plan of what, the next four years of my life would be from 2016. And in terms of my career, in terms of what I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to run a show. I wanted to um, continue to write features and I wanted to explore genres I hadn't written before. And and I've been very fortunate to do that. I wanted to adapt some things. I wanted to direct and I've, I've um, supposed to You know, if we ever get back into production, I'm attached to direct something for next year. So, those were things that I really wanted. So, I this is the first time that I sort of haven't had a plan a little bit. You know, I I think for me, the next kind of two years of my life looks like hopefully writing and directing this feature. I'm adapting a book that um, I've adapted a book that comes out in March, and I think that's going to be a really exciting experience i hope i learn a lot um i think that and and then obviously um the girl from plainville which is the the limited series that i co-created and 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 co-running yes um, getting that into production and getting that going so those are the two priorities for me i think in terms of what else there is i and this really goes back to this wasn't planned but this really goes back to the Stephen and david kind of Back to back that I yes. had is I just want to continue to learn. I want to continue to work with people that I'm going to learn from. I want to continue to work with people yes, who that makes great sense. Um, inspire me, who um, make me better at my job. You know, I think the work that I did on the post and the work that I did on Mindhunter and I think subsequently other projects have always made me hopefully a better writer. So I would like to, and a a better collaborator and a better producer and hopefully a better director. And so those are real, those are important things. So in terms of, I think there's nothing necessarily concrete other than Plainville and, and um, the feature, but I just, I want to work with people that I can learn from and that can make me better. And that I also like just fucking enjoy talking to. I don't want to pick up the phone and hate the person I'm working with it's just life is too short. I just we're not in our jobs we're not curing cancer, we're not curing covid, we're not, you know, doing things. What we do is really important in term I believe so in terms of entertainment, in terms of exploring things and a, as well as in production providing jobs and 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 having um a sustainable industry is very important. But, you know, I I want to enjoy the people I work with. I don't want to come home and be miserable. So you know, it's more of a, I think I would just like to do things that make my life happier. I I love that. No.
0: And in the learning thing, like I will say mid-career, Dave and I started to work with Steven Soderbergh a lot and Mm -hmm. it was a gigantic life change because even though we'd been doing this for like a long time, maybe six years before we started working with Steven, like we made three things with him and it was suddenly learning all sorts of aspects about what it meant to work as a pro at that level. And I don't think we could have ended up making the show if we didn't have that time period. So it's, it it is all, um, makes complete sense why you'd want to. And I remember thinking like whatever this guy wants us to do, we'll do. I just want to be around him. I just want to be in that world. And it was worth it for that. it's,
1: It's so worth it. I mean, I think it's worth it in the short term. It's worth it in the long run. And, you know, when I was working with David, he's so, uh, this is not a spoiler alert, you know, he's so hyper specific and yes. hyper tuned it. But I mean, but it's interesting because it's also, he's hyper specific about everything. So it's almost a universal hyper specificity. Is that specificity? specificity? There it is. There yeah, it is. There. You got there. Slightly dyslexic. So it comes out a little I, bit. My, um,
0: my family were very hip to that. Don't worry. My, my daughter's right, great. a proud um, dyslexic. Yes.
1: So uh, I, and and he would, you know, we would be in rehearsals and he would, um, stop and say, Well, why is this? Why did you choose this word? Well, I don't know. It sounded good. Um, that's not the right answer. It's, you know, why do you, what does this word mean? Is there another word that's going to mean more yes. towards what we want to say here? And it's, so it, 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 I think that was really, really influential to me. And I learned, obviously, so much more than just what does this word mean from him. But I think. Being thoughtful and caring about every single thing you're putting down on the page. Making sure there's no fat, that it is there, and that what you are saying is clear and concise and um, universally um, uh, relatable in terms of anybody could pick up the script and read it and understand what I'm trying to evoke. That and say.
0: question about specificity of word is, it it shows you if you're gonna be that specific about the word choices, it it gives you a playbook to understand the level of specificity required to tell stories in the way that mm-hmm. he does. Right. Mm-hmm. So that 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 makes total sense to me. Um also. Well, Liz, thanks for taking the time and doing this. You're I think your story's so inspiring. Thank um, you, Brian. I because really you had so many it. years of that you could have just not pursued it. You had so other avenues, other ways you could have like dealt with this, but you in the end, you had to listen to that voice right inside you and the way in which you did it. And the fact that it ends up in a movie starring those people and you get to be on set every day is um, it's a gigantic win. It's the kind of win that makes people go to Hollywood, actually. Right. So um, it's it's really great. So thanks for doing this. You can find Liz Hanna on Twitter. Um, I don't know if you're also on. Do you have a public Instagram too or no?
1: I do. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. It's On Instagram, it's mostly pictures of my dog. So have fun.
0: What's uh, your name on Instagram?
1: It's both there at it's Liz Hannah.
0: Great. And you can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. If you send me weird McNamara conspiracy stories, I will not forward them. <laughs> She's done with that. She's written it and it's over now. All right, Liz, take care. Thanks so much.